From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. The way that I would encapsulate it is to say the magical thinking is that we can have both, which is to say we can have infinite expenditure and infinite consumption on the one hand and our lives and our earth on the other. We can have both these things. That's the magical thinking and that we're going to be able to do that through technological development. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're delighted today to welcome to the program Mary Jane Rubenstein. She's Professor of Religion and Technology in Society at Wesleyan University. She's co-author of Image, Three Inquiries in Imagination and Technology, published by the University of Chicago Press. And she's the author of Pantheologies, Gods, Worlds, Monsters, Worlds Without End, The Many Lives of the Multiverse, and Strange Wonder, The Closure of Metaphysics and the Opening of Awe. Today we're talking about her recent book, Astrotopia, The Dangerous Religion of the Corporate Space Race. Professor Mary Jane Rubenstein, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you so much, David. It's a delight to be here. So I'd like to start our conversation in a bit of an odd place. I want to take you and the listeners back to the middle of the 16th century, and a ship has arrived on the coastline of the Americas, and standing in the bow of this ship is a Spaniard sailor, and suddenly, as the boat drops its anchor, he unfurls a large document and begins to speak a long set of phrases in Latin. Now, most of the people on the ship don't speak Latin. No one on the lands that they're facing speak Latin. Help us to understand what's going on in this particular moment. Delightful. What is going on is that the person on the bow of the ship reading an exceedingly lengthy document in Latin is reading a document that gets translated as the requisition. And this document states to the indigenous people of the Americas, who, as you have already said, do not speak Latin or hear it or read it for that matter, declares to the indigenous inhabitants of the Americas that they are all children of one God. That this God, it basically gives them a cast of characters. You are all children of one God. We call him God. This God was incarnate in one man we call Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth gave all authority on earth to one guy named Peter. So are you paying attention? These are a whole bunch of people named Peter. Peter has given authority to a guy after him and a guy after him and a guy after him, referring to all of the popes in apostolic succession, the most recent of whom is Alexander VI. And Alexander VI has declared with all of the authority of God through Christ that this land that you inhabit belongs to Spain. And if I'm understanding, 
the impulse of that document is to declare two things to these indigenous people who don't understand the language that it's being declared in. You can either accept your role in this story, that you are subject to this one God and subject to the edicts that this representative of the one God on earth, the Pope, has declared— or you can declare yourselves enemies of that God and we will go to war with you. Do I understand that correctly or would you say it in a different way? No, that's right. It's either accept this story, which is to say accept your place within this cosmology that we have just offered, which is also to say accept the dominion of the church and of Spain as her rightful administrator. Or refuse your right in this cosmology, in which case we will utterly destroy you. And what I really like about your book, Astrotopia, is you take this scene, this moment where there's basically a universal declaration being made about how every square inch of the earth is already claimed by this God and this representative of God. And you begin to tie it in and say, every time that we see Christian communities, Christian civilizations setting foot in any new place, they carry with them this story. Now, that was the impression that I got. I want to make sure, have I overplayed the hand here or have I got the balance right that you're taking this as a kind of microcosm of the way in which basically Christian thinkers have thought about physical space through the centuries? Great. The only revision I would ask for is that I would say that this is the way that imperial Christian thinkers have thought about the relationship of Christian nations or either explicitly or implicitly Christian nations to the land. In this case, the entire earth. And as you're probably gesturing, eventually to the cosmos itself. There have been plenty of Christian thinkers throughout the history, the long history of theological and ecclesiastical musings who have opposed this sort of thinking. But this is the kind of thinking that teams up with imperialism to dominate the globe first, and now to attempt to colonize the cosmos. Well, you've made this distinction implicitly, but now let's make it explicit. So you're drawing a distinction between imperial Christianity and perhaps some other kind of Christianity. Could you make that distinction plain for us? What, what do you mean about, or what are the characteristics of these two distinct Christianities that you're talking about? Sure. I would call one imperial Christianity and the other something like counter-imperial Christianity. Imperial Christianity is the kind that teams up with early capitalism in the 15th and 16th century to lend ideological and even sacred legitimacy to the conquest of the globe. Counter-imperial Christianity is the kind that usually begins from the recognition that Jesus of Nazareth was born in occupied Palestine at a really bad time in the life of the Roman Empire, and that insists that it's, in fact, the task of Christians to oppose empire and not to advance it. And are there slippages between these two camps? Yeah, absolutely. But I think there are two very broad trends here that divide Christians significantly from one another. The question is, are you supposed to be on the side of the empire or against it? If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Mary Jane Rubenstein. She's professor of religion and science in society at Wesleyan University. She's the author of numerous books, and today we're talking about her most recent book, Astrotopia, The Dangerous Religion of the Corporate Space Race. 
Well, listeners may be a little confused at this point because your book is called Astrotopia. It's about the space race, but we started out talking about a ship in the 16th century landing on the shore of the Americas. So now let's begin to connect those dots. What is it about that moment in 16th century Spanish imperial conquest that can help us begin to understand our current situation as now increasingly private corporations have taken over our advancement into near-Earth space and eventually possibly the moon, Mars, and beyond? Gosh, okay. I think there are two major developments to which we need to pay attention here. First is the concrete, explicit legacy of this kind of Christian dominion, this Christian imperialism that begins, as you're saying, on the bow of these ships in the 16th century. And there you can trace a very straightforward line from the seizure of the Americas by European powers through the doctrine of manifest destiny in the 19th century that was said to justify theologically the expansion of European-descended Americans to occupy the entire continent, right, all the way to California, which was initially said to be the final frontier, right, to the 1950s when former Nazi rocket scientist Werner von Braun declared that the next chapter in Manifest Destiny was the extension of both America and the Christian project, specifically Christianized America, specifically American Christianity into the cosmos, as he hoped the U.S. would win the space race and conquer the cosmos for America and for Christ. And that same line, I mean, that that just extends straight through to Mike Pence and Donald Trump, who say in 2019 and 2020 that outer space is America's manifest destiny. So it's a very clear, again, inheritance of a specific imperial Christian and then American heritage. I think you add a new layer. It's not even a layer. You add a new dimension when you talk about the way that this contemporary chapter of the space race is increasingly dominated by private actors, increasingly dominated by corporations and by charismatic CEOs of these corporations. And that for, for me, that the site of the work that religious language is doing shifts. So do we still in the 2020s hear talk about how the U.S. is God's chosen nation to go and conquer the cosmos for Christ? Yes, of course we hear that language, but it doesn't seem to be as broadly compelling as it used to be. What we have instead is this rise of these kind of private messianisms. By messianisms, I mean that they're movements focused around a charismatic figure who's promising salvation. These sort of new religious movements springing up around these charismatic CEOs who are proclaiming incoming disaster to earthlings and who are promising salvation from that disaster if you go along with them and you pursue a glorious future in outer space. So this is a different style of religion, I think, that's taking hold alongside the older kind of, again, explicitly Christian language, but that's that seems to be gaining momentum. I'm so grateful for the way that you addressed my overly capacious question with a very clear answer that walked us through the connecting points. I couldn't have asked for better, and I'm very grateful. But you introduced a term there that I want to circle back to, this notion of manifest destiny. So I'd like you to define that. And then perhaps also, after you've talked to us about manifest destiny, you could also bring in a new concept that we haven't talked about yet, something that has been referred to as the doctrine of discovery. Maybe talk to us about those two terms. Sure. 
Can I do them in the opposite direction? Absolutely. Delightful. The doctrine of discovery is the idea that has really been with us since the 16th century, since probably the 15th century. It's a Western European legal idea that insists that if a land that a European nation discovers is not inhabited, or if there's nothing there, if it is, the Latin term is terra nullius, if it is land belonging to no one's land, no man's land is usually the way we talk about it, then the European nation that discovers it has the right to claim it. Now, of course, in practice, what the European explorers found very quickly was that there is no such thing as no one's land, that there were people in all of the lands that they explored whose land it was. So the way that the doctrine shifts a little bit is to say, well, okay, even if there are people there and they're on the land, if they're not really doing anything with it, which is to say, if they're not doing anything of value, which is to say, if they haven't built any structures that we recognize to have added value to this land, then it is effectively no one's land, then it is effectively open for seizure by the first European nation that gets there. And it was basically a way to adjudicate among European nations. It wasn't even so much a way to grant rights or deny them to indigenous populations. It was a way to say, does it go to Spain or Portugal or England or France or does it go to the Netherlands? Who does it go to? So that doctrine of discovery has been with us for five or six hundred years. Sort of opens onto a new chapter with this notion of manifest destiny, which again takes root in the 19th century as a means of justifying the, let's just call it primarily white occupation of the North American continent. And the idea is that just as God gave the land of Canaan to the Israelites, And just as God opened a new chapter in that covenant with God's donation of the Americas to Europe, God is now calling those the descendants of those Europeans to expand what is known as God's new Israel, which is to say the United States of America, God's new Canaan, God's new Israel, to expand it throughout the continent. And this is our, again, white-descended, European descended white Americans. This is their destiny. And that destiny is manifest, which is to say the reasons for God's election are clear, which is to say, because after all, descended Americans are winning. They're doing so well. They take the land they want, they occupy it, that they make it in their own image. So unlike, this is the theological move that's really baffling, unlike the election of Israel, God's choosing the people of Israel all over all other people, which is mysterious, which is never really certain. Does God really like the Jews? God isn't really doing well by the Jews. It's like a matter of faith. God's having chosen America is clear. It's manifest. So that's what that, this is what that term means. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Mary Jane Rubenstein. She is professor of religion and science and society at Wesleyan University. She's the author and co-author of numerous books. Today we're talking about her recent book, Astrotopia, The Dangerous Religion of the Corporate Space Race. We'll be back in just a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. 
Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're delighted today to be speaking with Mary Jane Rubenstein. She's Professor of Religion and Science in Society at Wesleyan University. She's the co-author of Image, Three Inquiries in Imagination and Technology, published by the University of Chicago Press, and she's the author of Pantheologies, God's World's Monsters. She's also the author of World Without End, The Many Lives of the Multiverse, and Strange Wonder, The Closure of Metaphysics and the Opening of Awe. Today we're talking about her recent book, Astrotopia, The Dangerous Religion of the Corporate Space Race. Well, at the beginning of the last segment, we started in an odd place with a Spaniard sailor standing in the bow of a 16th century ship just arriving in the Americas and reading this long scroll of Latin and connected that to the idea of the doctrine of discovery and manifest destiny. I now want to begin this part of the conversation in another strange place. Now we're in the 1960s, and the space race on both the Soviet and the American side are in full swing, and one of the ways in which they wanted to test the module that was going to go to the moon was to lease a good deal of land that was held by the Navajo Nation. And as part of this, in exchange for this lease agreement, my understanding is that the Navajos asked, well, yes, you can pay us for this, but also we'd like you to take something to the moon for us. And as this message was being given, someone translated it for the NASA officials, and the translation roughly was, hey, whoever is on the moon, watch out for these guys. I I just want you to take us back to that moment and what you draw from that interaction between the Navajo Nation and the NASA officials. Right. It's a message that the Navajo officials are sending to the people of the moon, the indigenous inhabitants of the moon. And yeah, they're saying, watch out for the white guys. They might mess up the moon the way that they'd messed up the earth. This is the message. So what the Navajo leaders seem to know very clearly and very quickly is that this race to outer space that the U.S. is now engaged in against the USSR is just a continuation of the same drama that colonized the Earth. And one says that now and often receives blowback in one form or another when one makes these comparisons. But again, this it wasn't just the leader of the Navajo Nation. It was a translator also who saw it very clearly in the 1960s. This is the same game. And it was partly satirical, I think, to say to the moon people, you know, watch out for the white guys. They're going to mess up the moon. Partly satirical. And I think it was partly serious because for numerous indigenous nations, including the Navajo, the Cherokee, the Inuit, and a number of others that one could mention, there actually are people in the universe. And it's and we're not just talking about extraterrestrials whose existence NASA could either confirm or deny, but there are spirits, there are ancestors, there are all sorts of beings with other kinds of bodies who inhabit these places. So it could be read quite seriously, like they're coming for you and for your world. One of the things that I really like about what you do throughout your book, Astrotopia, and we're seeing an example of it here, is you begin to draw in these little vignettes, these little moments where there is a real friction between the ways in which we imagine the world and the stories that we tell ourselves about the world and the cosmos, and you bring them into conversation and into sort of tension with one another. And so this message from the Navajo Nation, hey, watch out for the white guys coming to the moon, it's in tension with the placard 
record that is affixed to the base of the lunar lander that says, we came in peace for all mankind. One of the things that I understood from your book, Astrotopia, is that when we say we come in peace for all mankind, we're always bracketing the set that includes mankind, humankind, that it doesn't really include all the peoples. Now, as I'm saying this to you, I'd invite you to reflect on it. First of all, do I have that tension correct, or would you place the tension in a different place? If I do have it correct, what can we learn from this tension between a warning message from the Navajo and the story that we're telling ourselves that we're going to the moon for all of humanity? Yes. So this placard, this funny, very strange silver plaque on the base of the lunar lander that says, this is the year of the lunar landing. We came in peace for all mankind. It has the signatures of the astronauts and the signature of Richard Nixon. And the it's on the one hand, heartwarming to declare on the basis of these very powerful white dudes, that they came in peace for all humanity or for all mankind. But on the other hand, we know that it was the result of a sort of fast and furious military effort conducted against the USSR in order to make sure that the U.S. had what Eisenhower initially referred to as the ultimate military position, which would be in outer space. So we know that it's not simply a matter of peace, right? And we also know that it's not a matter of coming for all mankind because this gesture of U.S. supremacy was made precisely so that the USSR didn't get there first. We also know that the the guys on the spaceship were all white, young, able-bodied men, right? Americans. We also, so we we know that there are a lot of limits to this all mankindism. And we also know that the model of space exploration is precisely the model that terrestrial exploration has been based on, the kind of terrestrial exploration that takes off from European imperialism that also announced itself as for all mankind in order to justify its taking over and ruling things. So in that sense, you can see the plaque as a sort of late stage reiteration of that requisition document. Just like the requisition, it is speaking a language that nobody on the moon would understand. Just like the requisition, it is signed by dudes nobody on the moon knows. And just like the requisition, it is saying, hello, we are all one. Everybody is one for the sake of saying, and among everybody who's one, the U.S. is in charge. So it's this double movement of proclaiming on the one hand a kind of universalism and on the other hand of insisting on the rulership of, in this case, the U.S., in the case of the Requisition, Spain is backed by the Church. One of the delicious counter-narratives to what you've just laid out for us, this sort of placard that says we're all one in languages that you don't understand, signed by people that you've never met, the counter-narrative to that that comes up repeatedly through your book, Astrotopia, is a spoken word piece by Gil Scott Heron called Whitey on the Moon. And for (laughs) listeners that have never encountered this spoken word piece before, could you describe it briefly and talk about how it pushes against this sort of narrative of for all mankind and this narrative of faux unity that the placard is pushing? Yeah. What Gil Scott Heron is saying is he begins the poem where he is or where the speaker of the poem is, which is to say in an apartment with unreliable access to things like water and energy with an exploitative landlord. And he says that he doesn't have rent and he doesn't have reliable access to water and heat and nobody's plowing a street, right? He's in a, he's in a, a condition of very challenging 
an oppressive urban living. And his sister, because of the lack of sanitation in his apartment complex, his sister gets bitten by a rat, right? Which is just insulting and terrifying and awful and abject, right? And so he, and he introduces this kind of split screen between his sister getting bitten by a rat in this flea-ridden, overpriced, horrible apartment and Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin hopping around on the boat. And he's like, what is this doing for us? What are you spending all that money for? And what he goes on to explain in the course of the poem is not just that all that money that could be spent on the moon is not being spent down here, but that in fact, the taxes he's paying and then the taxes that his landlord is paying that are so high that, he, that his landlord then has to increase the rent so that he can't pay the rent. All of that is actually funding the work of dancing around on the moon. So it, it, which is to say that it's not just a reallocation of funds. It's not just that the funds are put in the wrong place. It's that his, he's actually funding this expedition of white dudes on the moon who are not doing anything to help this, this situation of his in his horrible apartment where his sister's been bit by a rat. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Today we're speaking with Mary Jane Rubenstein. She's Professor of Religion and Science in Society at Wesleyan University. Today we're talking about her recent book, Astrotopia, The Dangerous Religion of the Corporate Space Race. Well, a moment ago with Gil Scott Heron's Whitey on the Moon, you showed how Heron is connecting the rent that he's paying and the rent that is being raised and raised so that eventually he can't pay it. The line between that and the white guy dancing around on the moon. A little earlier in our conversation, you referenced these charismatic CEOs, and they really become sort of characters in your book, Astrotopia, and let's name them. So Mark Zuckerberg and Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk are all some of these charismatic CEOs. And the sort of analog that I can think of to Gil Scott Heron realizing that his rent is helping the white guy dancing on the moon and the absurdity of that would be Jeff Bezos saying, every time that you're buying laundry soap, you're helping us to go into the stars. But Take that connection that I just made between Jeff Bezos with Amazon.com and his ideas to take take conquest of space and begin to introduce for us how have things shifted from the time that nation states like the USSR and the USA were putting people into space in the 1960s and 1970s and where we are now, where we have begun to privatize the space race. Right. Okay. So the big shift really comes about very recently in 2011 when Barack Obama reveals the unveils the NASA budget for the next year, discontinuing the space shuttle program and declaring that a good number of the funds that would ordinarily go to NASA are now going to go to private industry to encourage the development of private rockets, private space industry. And the idea is, the promise is that this move is actually going to take relief from the taxpayer. This is going to relieve the taxpayer of the burden of having to fund Whitey on the moon. Now Whitey is going to fund Whitey. <laughs> like the, the corporate guys are going to fund themselves in the space race. 
The problem, of course, is that you probably haven't seen any tax relief. I certainly haven't seen any tax relief since we stopped funding NASA. But the bigger issue is that we're not not funding NASA. We're, of course, still funding NASA. And that NASA now is granting enormous contracts to people like Bezos and Musk, particularly Musk. They're competing for these government contracts. And these are massive government contracts in order to do this research and development, which is to say we're still paying the money that goes into the government contracts that get get given to Musk and Bezos. So now rather than funding NASA, we're funding these private enterprises that are allegedly taking the strain off the taxpayer. It, it, they're not. And in the meantime, these guys dodge taxes. So they're not even paying themselves for the system that's then funding them. And as I've snarkily said, it's like the Amer- American taxpayer is directly funding Musk and Bezos, even if you don't buy anything on Amazon. And then when you do buy something on Amazon, you're contributing to it because it's As Bezos explains, every time you buy shoes on Amazon, you're helping to fund his private corporation, Blue Origin. So this is how this works. This is the new state of funding, at least in in the space world. And one of the things that I really appreciated about your book, Astrotopia, is you helped to clarify for me the differing goals and worldviews of Elon Musk and Jeffrey Bezos. Now, because this is a family show on a publicly broadcast radio station, we can't quote exactly what Elon Musk says about the Earth, but we can get Mm -hmm. the sentiment of it. Help us to see the distinction, the difference between how Musk views the journey into space and how Bezos sees the journey into space. Okay. So the similarity is that both of them portend imminent disaster. They both tell us disaster is coming and they both say, and I have the way to salvation. So this is the commonality, but the disasters are different. For Elon, I'll start with Musk because his narrative is a little better known. For Musk, the coming disaster is either that an asteroid is going to come and wipe us all out like it wiped out the dinosaurs, or AI robots are going to go rogue and destroy all their human creators, or we're going to obliterate ourselves through nuclear war. But an end will come to humanity through one of these means at some point. He doesn't know if it's a year from now. He doesn't know if it's a million years from now, but it'll come. And if humanity has remained an earthbound species at that point of disaster, then humanity itself will be obliterated by that obliterating event. Therefore, Musk says, either we let ourselves go extinct, and he does not explore that option, or we have to have a backup planet. We need somewhere else to go. We need to plant some humans somewhere else so there's still a remnant of humanity to remember all of human history, to preserve all of human culture. And so Musk proposes moving an eventually large chunk of the population, but an initially small band of pioneers, to Mars, who can make a settlement on Mars who can do the very hard work of making Mars habitable and who can eventually become that kind of backup receptacle for human history. They can maintain the computers that maintain the data, that maintain the memory of all of human history. So for Musk, what's at stake really is the salvation of the human species, in his own words. For Bezos, it's a little bit different. The disaster is different. He doesn't really talk about asteroids. He does not talk about robots. He doesn't talk about nuclear war even. The disaster, the coming, the more tangible disaster for Jeff Bezos is an energy crisis. We're using too much energy, he says. We just can't continue on this trajectory of more and more devices and more and more connectivity and more and more first-rate hospitals and more and more well-functioning universities. We just can't continue using this much energy. 
Therefore, we need more energy. But if we put solar, even if we put solar panels on every structure under the sun, we wouldn't have enough access to energy on Earth as it is currently shaded and protected from the sun in order to power everything that we want infinitely. Therefore, we need more energy. Therefore, we got to find energy off planet. To Bezos, Mars is A, too far, B, too cold. And see, too horrible. Like it's a terrible planet. It's a really awful. You can't be there without a spacesuit. It would boil your blood. Your eyes would pop out of your body. It's like a, it's a bad planet. So Bezos says, "Why don't we follow the lead of my mentor from Princeton, Gerard O'Neill, who had this idea that we could construct these cylindrical, rotating space pods between the Earth and the Moon." Construct them like like big shopping malls, but you'd live there. And in that sense, in that way, we can move a good deal of the human population into these space pods. In the space pods, you have access to infinite solar energy. You just hold, you just stick solar panels on all of them. And in the meantime, you can move the big industry that's currently hurting the Earth onto asteroids and you can mine the asteroids and make your big manufacturing there. And in the meantime, having been relieved of a good deal of the human population and of a great deal of production, the earth gets a nap. So if Musk's big concern, stated concern is to save humanity, Bezos's big stated concern is to save the earth. What strikes me about both of these is it's an interesting mixture of what I would call a kind of magical thinking. We're going to get a magic wand solution to this huge hyper problem that we've hypothesized is out there, but it's combined with technology. And as we're moving towards our next break, I'd I'd love for you to reflect on that with me. Have I got this right, that it's this interesting alchemy of magic and technology that we're going to fix this global problem that we refuse to actually fix here on Earth by going somewhere else and using technology to then import a solution back to us? Does that seem right to you, or would you say it in a different way? It sounds right. The way that I would encapsulate it is to say the magical thinking is that, as Jeff Bezos says, we can have both, which is to say we can have infinite expenditure and infinite consumption on the one hand and our lives and our earth on the other. So we can have both of these things. That's the magical thinking and that we're going to be able to do that through technological development. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Mary Jane Rubenstein. She's professor of religion and science and society at Wesleyan University. She's the co-author of Image, Three Inquiries in Imagination and Technology. And she is the author of Pantheologies, God's World's Monsters, Worlds Without End, The Many Lives of the Multiverse, and also the author of Strange Wonder, The Closure of Metaphysics and the Opening of Awe. Today we're talking about her recent book, Astrotopia, The Dangerous Religion of the Corporate Space Race. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're delighted today to be speaking to our guest, Mary Jane Rubenstein. She's Professor of Religion and Science and Society at Wesleyan University. She's the author and co-author of numerous books. Today we're talking about her recent book, Astrotopia, The Dangerous Religion of the Corporate Space Race. 
Well, previously in the conversation, we have mentioned a couple of times a speech given by former President Barack Obama, where he basically says to the government workers at the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, your time is up. We're going to turn this over to the CEOs and we're going to let the private sector begin to take us into space. What you help us to see in your book, Astrotopia, is that there is an old war happening there. The difference between what we might call the commons and what we might call corporate space or privatized space. But for listeners that may not be familiar with that distinction or its long history, can you tell us a little bit about what the commons was as an idea and how we lost it on Earth and how we again lost it at this moment when Barack Obama and others were closing down the more communal approach to space and space exploration? Sure. So the idea of the commons is that there is space in any given community that anybody can access and use so that they can live. So if the forest is a commons, any person who lives in the vicinity of the forest can go and find mushrooms there to cook and eat and live from can take twigs and sticks to use for wood. Can, so a, a commons is a space that is available for everybody and accessible to everybody. It's not just accessible, available to the people to whom it's accessible. For example, the beaches in Connecticut, which are technically public. You can't own a beach and yet the access is private. You can't park on the street or go onto those the you can't go you, if you don't live in one of these beach towns in Connecticut you can't walk on the staircase that leads you to the beach right so that's a way of restricting access to the commons the stories of the the sort of early pro progress of capitalism, one of the major starting points for the acceleration of capitalism is the closure of the commons, which is to say the seizure of that land or the enclosure of the commons. The nation state in particular declares ownership of the land and sort of sole right to regulate it and then starts selling it off to private actors. And suddenly it's not available to common people who depended on the commons for their livelihoods. And now suddenly they have to work, not for, to feed their families, but for the people who now own those enclosed lands. In the mid to late 60s, as it became 1960s, as it became apparent that there were certain nations that were going to make it into outer space ahead of other people. The USSR had already been there. The US was heading there. The US was trying to get to the moon, right? 1967, the United Nations manages to cobble together a document called the Outer Space Treaty that in the wake particularly of two absolutely devastating world wars, to my mind says, we're not doing this again. We are not going to treat outer space the way that we have treated the earth, which has resulted in these absolutely, they're not even talking about colonialism and post-colonialism, like to an extent there, but really they're like, this was bad for the colonial nations themselves. This is awful. The European nations tore themselves apart in addition to tearing apart the, the, the nations that they colonized. Let's not do this again. Let's all agree in this document that outer space is not subject in the language of the Outer Space Treaty to national appropriation. No nation can own it. You can't own a planetary, the U.S. can't own Mars. And not only can the U.S. not own Mars, but it can't even own a part of Mars. So when the U.S. planted a flag in the moon a year later, 
really on the moon. You can't really plant anything in the moon. It's too hard. But when they, they planted a flag on the moon and hoped that it stayed up long enough to take a picture of it, they weren't technically claiming the moon because you can't claim the moon. Now, symbolically, of course, they were saying we got here first. This is effectively ours. But you can't claim the moon. You can't claim any part of it. Okay. And actually, the Outer Space Treaty does go so far as to call outer space the common heritage of all mankind, that it belongs to everybody. They don't call it a commons, but they call it the common heritage of all mankind. As more and more nations have entered the space race or the space fray, and as it has become increasingly clear that there is money to be made in outer space, the scope of this understanding of space as some kind of commons has diminished excruciatingly has diminished considerably. And for me, the biggest development here was in 2015, when the US unilaterally passed what it calls the Commercial Space Launch Competitiveness Act, which reaffirms that nations cannot, in fact, own a planetary body, because of course, they're signatories to the outer space treaties, but which says that even though we can't own the planetary body itself, nations can, in fact, own stuff in or on a planetary body, which is to say resources, which is to say water, which is to say rocks, metals, precious metals, right? So that that has been really the big shift since 2015. And so now at this point, there's a whole slew of nations who, in allegiance to the U.S., also declare that you can mine and own the stuff on these planetary bodies. The problem, of course, is that it's not clear to me how, in practice, the Ownership of stuff in or on a planetary body is any different from the planetary body itself, not only because just philosophically, what the heck is the difference between a planet and the stuff that makes up the planet, but also just because practically, if you've got a mine and you are trying to control access to that mine, you are going to protect it with a space force, for example. You're going to protect it with military, with weapons, just as energetically as you would guard that space if you had declared it your own, if you had appropriated it through national sovereignty. So I don't quite see how this is anything other than a violation, certainly of the spirit of the Outer Space Treaty. Well, and another thing that you point out is that in addition to the loophole that you've just mentioned between a nation owning a planetoid or a planetary geography and the stuff in that planetary geography, you also point out that the treaty says that nations can't own these things, but it doesn't say anything about individuals or corporations that are legally treated as individuals. And so we have someone like Jeff Bezos saying, no, we can go into space and this becomes the unlimited mind that we bring resources from. But there's been pushback against Jeff Bezos. And you talk about one sort of crystalline moment where Jeff Bezos is giving this talk and a woman shouts him down, basically saying, you are raping the asteroids. And Bezos off-the-cuff response is, what do you think a rock has rights? And I'd like to invite you to engage that exchange with our listeners. What is there to be said for Bezos's side that rocks don't have any rights? What is there to be said for the voice of this woman and others, perhaps like Native Americans and other indigenous persons who say, absolutely rocks can have rights and other sorts of material substances can be treated with a spiritual dimension? Right. Okay. So I think that there are three big positions here. Well, there are probably more, but let's distill them into three big positions. One big position is rocks are just rocks. They are nothing other than either a nuisance or a resource to use if they happen to be worth something, if these particular rocks happen to be worth something on the market. 
This position is espoused by people like Bezos, certainly by people like Musk, by his by Musk's predecessor, Bob Zubrin, who is the chair of the Mars Society, which was seeking for decades before Musk to colonize Mars. Even for these folks that I think of as fairly conservative, they, they think that the doctrine of discovery was a mistake as it was enacted on the Earth. That having been said, this notion of terra nullius, of empty land, while it has been a mistake in every instance on Earth, is not a mistake when we talk about the moon or Mars. Those are actually genuinely, totally empty landscapes. There's nothing on the moon except for a couple of footprints and some dirty diapers. There is nothing on Mars. These rovers have shown over and over again that they smash apart rocks. There aren't even any microbes on Mars, it seems. Therefore, we were mistaken last time. There were indigenous people on Earth. Whoops. This time we got it right. This time the doctrine of discovery holds. This time terra nullius holds. This time we can do anything that we'd like to this to this land, especially. And here's where the ideological piece comes in, especially if it's for the benefit of humanity. Right. If it's going, how dare you hold up the rights of rocks against the rights of humans? Humans are going to be extinct if we stay where we're going. And you're going to tell me that we have to preserve the Martian landscape the way it is so that we can and and then guarantee the extinction of the human species? That's absurd. Of course, we should terraform Mars, which is to say, make it livable for humans, make it as Earth-like as possible, put human beings there for the sake of the salvation of the species. Okay, that's one position. The other position on the extreme end of that would be something like, okay, but some rocks aren't just rocks. Some rocks are actually sacred, as we can see with the example of sacred mountains throughout the U.S. They're sacred to people. And in fact, some rocks that exist in outer space, even whole rocks, which is to say like the whole planet, are the inhabitation for all sorts of people, of the ancestors, of people who've gone before them, of relatives, of things like that. So actually space is not uninhabited. Actually, rocks are important. Again, maybe not all rocks, but some rocks are important. And it is important to ask to balance the rights of the natural landscape, right? There are mountains and rivers on Earth that are now being granted through certain nations, Australia, India, rights of their own, rights to exist as themselves, right? And we may need to think about the rights that these planetary formations may have to their own integrity and to their own existence. This is on the opposite side, I would say. Somewhere in the middle is the position that clusters together a number of compromised concerns, which would be something like, look, the way that Elon Musk wants to terraform Mars is to nuke it. He wants to drop 10,000 nuclear warheads on the planet in order to release greenhouse gases very quickly and transform the planet into something that's livable. A, not clear that's going to happen. B, even if it were going to happen, it seems pretty disastrous. And If we nuke Mars within an inch of its life and change it that dramatically, we are cutting ourselves off from any possibility of learning from Mars, of understanding what Mars's history was. We are basically exploding archaeological sites before we even get there. So there could that this is a sort of compromise position between, on the one hand, do whatever you want to it. On the other hand, they might have rights in their own. There there may be an instrumental purpose that this these places have to human knowledge, to understanding, to our place in the cosmos, et cetera. And I think right along with that kind of middle position, there's the question of whether the unfettered, untrammeled, land-grabbing approach to colonization that took root on Earth was good, A, for the Earth, 
or B, for the nations that participated in that. Again, even if you're not at all concerned with the indigenous microbes of Mars that might or might not be there, even if you're not all at all concerned with the Martian landscape, you can ask, would it be a good idea to send a whole bunch of competing unregulated forces up there um, to repeat the same dramas that led us into World Wars One and Two. So I think that these are a lot of different ways of thinking about it. I think faced with these kinds of positions, there might be a number of people of very good will, of very different, say, spiritual commitments, who could join together and say, there's got to be a different way that we can approach this than to treat it as no one's land, open season, new gold rush, or like the final frontier. And this leads to something that has been implicit throughout our conversation, and I treat as implicit in the reading of your book, but I'd now like to ask you explicitly. Do you see Astrotopia as a fundamental critique of capitalism and of the way in which we have formed our society over the last 450 years towards this kind of extractive, exploitive, colonialist sort of mindset. And if it is a critique of capitalism, what would you advocate as an alternative? Yeah, it is a critique of capitalism. I think that the reason that it's often implicitly a critique of capitalism is that the minute you start demonizing capitalism, you make a bunch of enemies you might not necessarily want to make, right? A bunch of people are like, oh gosh, this is like liberal left-wing wokeism or something like that. Stop it. Also, if you say that's capitalist and therefore it's bad, you don't necessarily say what the problem is. It's name-calling. So I try not so much to engage in name-calling except when I really mean it. (laughs) And the problem, as I see it, with U.S.-style late-stage capitalism is not just that it's capitalism. The problem is that it puts the pursuit of profit over everything else. I was just listening to NPR this morning, and I heard a story about rice farmers in Thailand who are not allowed to use water to grow rice because there is such a drought that the state has had to decide whether to allow farmers to use water for rice or to allow factories to use water to develop computer chips. And they've made the decision that it will be more of an economic benefit to the, com- to the country, to the nation, to develop the computer chips than it is to develop rice, because it's, of course, so cheap. And This is disordered. It is absolutely disordered thinking. This means that your people can't eat. This means that the pursuit of profit has gone to such an extent that, you know, and the extent to which Thailand has to produce for the market has become so deranged that... The pursuit of profit dictates who's allowed to eat and who isn't allowed to eat. So it's not just who gets to make a livelihood. Do the farmers get to make a livelihood or do the tech people get to make a livelihood? The question is, are we going to prioritize feeding our people or making money for the international market? And what we're going to do is making money for this. So that this is an extreme case of what what we call capitalism leads us to. So what I'm asking throughout the book is that we see that in almost every case that I try to foreground here, the problem has been not commitment to the philosophy of capitalism, not commitment to converting non-Christians to Christianity. The problem has been the pursuit of profit over everything else. And what I'm asking is that if we really want to think about outer space as the possibility of doing new stuff, that we rethink that one premise that profit is the most important value that we have. And 
towards the end of your book, Astrotopia, you gesture towards what you call pantheistic mysticism. And I wonder if you would be willing to briefly line that out for us. What is the hope for you as you think about these problems that you've laid out in the book for pantheistic mysticism? Okay, so pantheistic mysticism, as I refer to it, is actually, I'm reappropriating a a name-calling gesture on the part of Bob Zubrin, again, the CEO of the Mars Society. Bob Zubrin is responding to this very modest white paper that a number of advisors to and, and employees of NASA wrote saying that one major problem that we are going to need to address in the next 10 years, this was for a decadal survey, what are we going to do in the next 10 years? What they said was one major problem is this colonial approach to space exploration. And what they advocated was listening to the voices of marginalized peoples, particularly the indigenous and black folks on this planet, to ask whether this is a decent approach to outer space or whether we should be doing it somewhat differently. So they they commend what they call community input, right? NASA is very good at community output. They're really good at making these really cool graphics that make us go, oh my gosh, that's so cool. And coining these great phrases like for all humankind. If you've seen the NASA, the Artemis II posters, they no longer say for all mankind. They now say for all humankind, which can now make us feel good because we're not excluding women and we're going to have a black person on the flight and things like that. Feels very inclusive. What these authors are saying is it's not enough just to put women and folks of color in these missions. We have to rethink the missions themselves. And the way to rethink the missions themselves is to ask marginalized people whether this approach seems appropriate or not. And this is a very modest recommendation, just community input, get community input. And Bob Zubrin writes this absolute screed online calling the authors wokists and saying that they're trying to, to shut down space exploration. And he says that the things that they are, when these wokists talk about how some indigenous communities think of mountains and rivers as alive, he says that is just pantheistic mysticism. And pantheistic mysticism has been disproven by science for a long time. So I like to take a moment and ask what he is talking about when he talks about pantheistic mysticism. Mysticism is the idea that any individual might undergo techniques to unite themselves with what is really real, whether that be God, whether that be the cosmos, whatever the source of the sacred is, mysticism allows the sort of individual to become united to it. Pantheism is the idea that what we mean by the word God is the whole universe itself. That's what God means. And to my mind, look, I have no idea what God is. I have no idea who God is. I have no idea whether God reveals God's self whether there is a God, I feel like there have been a lot of smart people throughout the history of things. And that if anybody could have proven, demonstrated the answer to this question, somebody would have. That having been said, I think that there are more and less helpful models of God, more and less helpful ways of thinking about God. I do think that the notion, our understanding of God as a disembodied white dude in the sky who sees us when we're sleeping and knows when we're awake has done a whole lot of harm. And I also think that efforts to abandon this God don't really help because then people who keep talking about God keep talking about God as a disembodied white dude in the sky who sees us when we're sleeping and knows when we're awake. So I think instead it's a little more promising to rethink who God is and how God works. And it has long seemed to me that this idea of pantheism, of the entire universe as participating in what we call divinity, 
might be useful, might be an interesting place to start, might be ethically helpful. It might be ethically helpful to engage everything that is as part of the ongoing dance of the creation and the sustaining and the destruction and the rebirth of the universe. We might treat the beings of the world, the beings in the world with a little more respect if we could see them as the site of the sacred itself. Not, but we might. (laughs) So it seems to me a good try. And it also seems to me, I'm not trying to convert anybody to pantheism. There are these sort of like pantheistic trends within all of the spiritual traditions of the world. So I think that there are ways to find like the sneaky pantheists within these, within all these traditions and get them together around a shared love of the universe, of the world, of what is, and a shared commitment to the thriving of its creatures. Well, Mary Jane Rubenstein, we have only begun to scratch the surface of your book, Astrotopia, and I just want to express how grateful I am because going into this book, I knew the big pictures of the space race, but you connected it to so many deeper pieces and you helped me to see so clearly how these trends have developed and how we've gotten to where we are in 2023. I just want to say how much I enjoyed the book, how much I enjoyed this conversation. Thank you for taking the time to write the book, but thank Thank you especially for taking the time to talk about it with me and my listeners. Oh, David, I'm so grateful for the time you spent with it and with me. And thanks so much to the listeners, too. We've been speaking today with Mary Jane Rubenstein. She's professor of religion and science and society at Wesleyan University. She's the co-author of Image, Three Inquiries in Imagination and Technology, published by the University of Chicago Press. She's the author of Pantheologies, Gods, Worlds, Monsters, also the author of Worlds Without End, The Many Lives of the Multiverse, and Strange Wonder, The Closure of Metaphysics and the Opening of Awe. Today we've been talking about her recent book, Astrotopia, The Dangerous religion of the corporate space race. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.